Welcome to the Spartan Spirits Podcast, where we take a stoic, pragmatic, and nation-first view of policies and practices that are not in Western society's best interests. I'm your host, Bill Karalakis. I'm a retired senior Royal Australian Air Force officer, and today we're talking about whether Western nations should implement a system of national service. As always on the Spartan Spirit, I'm presenting you with my opinion which I base on relevant research, balanced information sources, and a Spartan mindset. My aim is to awaken the Spartan spirit in you, so that you can play your part in challenging and correcting policies and practices that weaken the West, even if all that means is that you talk to your friends about what you've heard here today. Welcome, and I hope you enjoy the show. In episode 14, we covered the topic of individualism in the military. And in the very first episode of Best for the West, we talked about morale in the military. If you haven't heard those episodes, they refer to how the military builds its esprit de corps, teamwork and unit cohesion, all of which underpin military morale, which is an essential component of effectiveness in combat. Military service also teaches people much more than teamwork. People learn resilience, social interaction, how to stay fit, how to stay healthy, followership, leadership, and a range of skills. The police, fire departments, emergency service departments, customs, coast guard, and other similar branches of government also have some of these traits. Along with the benefits to the nation from the outputs of these departments and services in the military, The people who make up these organizations retain some of these traits through their life. Given the many benefits to society and the people in these organizations, I'm going to talk about the notion of having mandatory national service. Before I go any further on this, I'll declare my bias. I served over 30 years in the military, initially as an officer cadet and retiring as a one-star officer. My personal experience was mostly positive And although there were exceptions, I'd say the same for the thousands of people I met throughout my career. Today we'll cover the history of compulsory military service, the pros and cons of military service, and we'll touch on other forms of national service that Western nations might consider. Let's start off with the history. Some of the earliest records of conscription, in other words, mandatory military service, comes from China in 220 BC and Egypt in 27 BC. Fast-forwarding several hundred years, conscription became a popular method of building armies in the 17th to 18th century in Europe. In particular, Napoleon instituted nationwide conscription in France after 1803, and it lasted for over just 10 years. Prussia did the same in the early 1800s, but it continued the practice for decades. Thus, by the time of the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, The Prussians had a large army, and they defeated the smaller professional French army. France returned to conscription in 1871. The conscription used by those two countries did have exemptions for some people, such as the rich and professionals. Most European powers used a similar form of conscription at some point from then onwards until the end of 1945. Of the major European powers, only Britain stopped using conscription between the two world wars. 
In the U.S., there was a short use of conscription during the U.S. Civil War, then again in World War I, and then again in World War II. After World War II, most nations used conscription, albeit with selective service, whereby some sort of system was used to select some but not all men for military service. And interestingly, Israel introduced compulsory service for all men and women, one of the very few countries to have conscription for women. But changes were coming. Japan did away with conscription after World War II. Britain dropped it in 1960, and Canada followed shortly thereafter. The U.S. dropped conscription in 1973, and many European nations did the same in the decades that followed. Here's a snapshot of how conscription is used today. There are about 85 countries with mandatory conscription, sometimes with a selection system in place so that not all people are conscripted. Examples of countries with conscription include Austria, Greece, all the Nordic countries, Denmark, and these countries have conscription for a variety of lengths, usually under a year, but some are over a year, such as Norway, which by the way also conscripts women. Others use volunteers, some of the examples there are the US, Canada, Australia, and the United Kingdom. And some countries use a system called de jour, whereby people must register and could be called up if needed. For example, both China and the US use this system along with volunteers. We should note that some countries permit their conscripts to serve in other ways. So let's make the terms clear here. Compulsory military service, or conscription, is where a person is forced to serve in the military of a given nation. Compulsory national service could be either service in the military or service with some other government agency. This is sometimes called alternative civilian service. This alternative pathway may be used for individuals who don't meet the eligibility criteria for service in defense forces or who hold conscientious objections to military service. For example, in Austria, about 40% of males use the alternative pathway and then work in social services like hospitals, youth organizations, nursing homes, rescue services, medical services, or care of the disabled. Now that we know the history of conscription and have a sense of how it's being used, let's look at what the research says the issues are. And this is presented in no particular order. We'll start with fitness. My instinct tells me that people who serve in the military are likely to be fitter later in life because they probably adopted a fitness routine that endured even after leaving the military. And some studies support that conclusion. For example, the British Medical Journal published a paper titled Impacts of Military Service on Physical Health Later in Life, and it concluded that overall, veterans were in better physical condition than their civilian counterparts. This finding was also made in Australia. However, that same BMJ paper did note that veterans are more likely to experience hearing difficulties, musculoskeletal problems, and arthritis on leaving service. I also found a paper titled Exploring Health Outcomes for U.S. Veterans Compared to Non-Veterans from 2003 to 2019. This was published by the National Library of Medicine, and it said Despite their exposure to learning about and adopting fitness while in service, overall, U.S. veterans had more health issues than the average member of the U.S. population. 
There were many factors here, and two of the key ones were, firstly, the socioeconomics of the veterans themselves, and secondly, their exposure to physical and mental health injury during their military service. Let's move on to recruitments. A cursory glance at the recruit shortfalls of many Western nations, such as Australia, the United Kingdom, the U.S., and others, shows that nations are struggling to fill their quotas of new recruits in volunteer militaries. Some of those shortfalls are significant. For example, in 2019, the British Army only took in 60% of the numbers it needed. Clearly, countries that use conscription don't have a problem achieving the numbers they need for the size of the military they want. I think it's worth mentioning that with rising tensions in the Indo-Pacific, the possibility of an expanding war in Eastern Europe, and the tension in the Middle East over Hamas and Gaza, Western nations should not be complacent when it comes to these shortfalls. It takes two to three years to produce military personnel that can operate technically challenging equipment, such as aircraft, intelligence systems, ships, etc. And to develop military leaders takes even longer. With many strategists pointing to the mid to late 2020s for a possible conflict with China, Western nations need to do some soul-searching regarding these unfilled recruit targets. If the shooting starts, it'll be too late to start conscription to fill those vacant spots. These are needed to operate even the existing equipment, let alone filling the training establishments with experienced people to train any conscripted recruits during a conflict. If you hear your government talking about conscription to fill those shortfalls, I hope you'll get behind that initiative. It's pretty important at this point in our history. Let's move on to multiculturalism. There are several sources that mention the benefits of national service in multicultural nations. Places like Australia, Canada, the United Kingdom, and the U.S. take in many ethnically diverse migrants every year. Those migrants often prefer their own culture to that of their newly adopted nation, and countries that have regional affiliations that are contradictory to their national identity also experience a similar phenomenon. For example, some Spanish citizens identify themselves as part of a particular region instead of as Spaniards first. Research indicates that people who have served in the military tend to forego those regional and ethnic ties in favor of a nationalist perspective. For example, Professor Casares del Piano of the University of Carlos III of Spain wrote an article for the Journal of Public Economics in which he said, and this is a quote, Ethnic diversity might be beneficial for economic development by enhancing productivity and innovation, particularly in local economies. However, ethnic diversity also poses several challenges for societies as it can generate institutional instability and inefficient provision of public goods and higher likelihood of conflict. Such negative effects can be ameliorated by building a common national identity." End quote and his research indicated that being assigned to military service substantially increases national self-identification and increases the likelihood of voting in national elections and reduces the probability of voting for a regional faction. This was backed up by a Stanford paper that found that the military unites citizens from different social backgrounds. That same Stanford paper found that conscription can depolarize voters. In other words, people who served in the military 
are more apt to take an objective view of national issues and not be aligned with any particular group's perspective. The conclusion is, conscription helps bring multicultural communities together. And in countries like Australia, Canada, the United Kingdom, and the U.S., there needs to be some serious discussion about using conscription as a way to reduce ethnic tensions. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about support for the military, or you could call it government support. Research shows that people who have served in the military are far more apt to support their military than civilians who have never served in the military. Those nations with conscription, therefore, have militaries with much higher supports from the population than those countries without conscription. For example, a paper from the University of Essex studied 34 European nations using data from 1997 to 2017, and they found that those countries with conscription had far more public support for defense policy implementation, military interventions abroad, military budget considerations, and participation in military alliances. At a time when existential threats are rising, this added benefit of conscription is something that Western nations should be paying attention to and should be adding into their decision-making calculus when they consider how to fill the ranks of their militaries. Let's move on to the training of young adults. And when I say young adults, I'm talking about, you know, over the age of 18. There are pros and cons related to the education of people who are conscripted. On the downside, time spent in the military is time spent away from universities, trade schools, and earning potential. But on the positive side, and many papers acknowledge this, there are many aspects of military training that are beneficial to those who undergo conscription, such as technical skills related to military hardware being used, safety training, first aid, healthcare awareness, personal hygiene awareness, teamwork, responsibility, initiative, stress management, diversity, global awareness, healthy living habits, and of course, self-discipline and self-confidence. Additionally, a paper from the International School of Economics noted that the positive effects of military training appear to intensify over time. They went on to say that skill enhancement doesn't appear to explain this notable positive effect of military service, and they concluded that the networking achieved during service has much to do with it. That was quite a shopping list of benefits that people gain from being in the military. Let's move on to mental stress. It's a modern disease, and I think I'm going to do a podcast on this whole issue, but let's set that aside. There are two perspectives when it comes to considering military service and mental health. On the positive side, military service gives most people a sense of self-confidence and resilience, thus making them better able to handle stress. But there is a downside. Not everyone is cut out for the military. Not everyone can meet the physical requirements, which in itself can be stressful, and soldiers are intentionally put under stressful situations in training so that they can deal with real-life combat situations. Anyone with emotional instability, anxiety, depression, etc. may not react well to all of this pressure and stress. And of course, service in operational areas only adds to that stress. For example, estimates are that U.S. combat veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan suffer three times the national average of PTSD. Interestingly, 
The National Defense University of Finland noted that those who sought to avoid military conscription through some exemption, such as being a conscientious objector, suffered their own form of mental anguish in that they felt stressed when they had to defend their choices. Sounds like a lose-lose situation to me. Another negative aspect to military training is associated with how a person perceives being forced to be part of the military in terms of life satisfaction. Professor Eberl of the Friedrich Alexander University made a few comments about this, and his research led him to believe that compulsory military service in Germany impinged on a young man's life satisfaction and enhanced social inequality structures. So in summary, when it comes to mental stress, there's a bit of a balance going on here. And the reality is that the recruiting system has got to do a good job of filtering out those who aren't going to do well in the military. All right, let's talk now about citizenship. Many nations retain military conscription in the belief that military service instills a sense of duty as a citizen of the relevant nation. This sort of thinking was captured very well by Professor William Galston of the Brookings Institute when he wrote this, quote, Some of our nation's best social scientists see a link between World War II-era military service and that generation's productive dedication to our post-war civic life. If implementing a mandatory service model could yield even a fraction of these civic dividends, it would be worth the price, end quote. And Galston's concept is that universal service would be to promote active citizenship across the entire spectrum of socioeconomic differences. In other words, everyone would have to do their bit in some way. Other research supports this to a degree, particularly where nations force everyone to do military service such that everyone feels a bond to the military and a sense of unity through that bond. You can hear a bit more about how that works if you listen to the very first Spartan Spirit podcast where I talk about esprit de corps. Interestingly though, there is a downside to this. Some research shows that while military service instills a sense of duty to the military and the nation, that dedication is not necessarily in support of the civilians running the government. And if you want to read about how that works, Look up the work by Professor Bove, that's B-O-V-E, from the University of Warwick. There are other things we could talk about, such as how compulsory military service affects women by breaking the stereotypical concepts that rule male and female dynamics in modern Western nations. If you want to read more about this, have a look at a paper titled The Impact of Prior Combat Military Service on Israeli Women's Self-Efficacy and Risk Attitudes. That paper concluded that military service, particularly combat, gives women greater confidence both in themselves and in managing risk. We could also look at the economics of compulsory service, such as paying conscripts far less than you would pay a modern soldier in Western militaries, and having them do work that would otherwise cost the nation a lot of money, such as providing emergency services, or performing functions on behalf of the state. But that would have to be balanced against the added cost of housing, feeding, and clothing the entirety of the young adult population. We don't have time for that balance sheet perspective, but suffice to say, there are potentially budget savings and societal savings to be had here. 
Now, there are two points left that I need to make. Firstly, one of the main arguments against compulsory military service is that it violates a person's right to free will. The Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights is the leading UN entity in the field of human rights, and through their work, there is recognition of the right of everyone to have conscientious objection to military service as a legitimate exercise of the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion, as laid down in Article 18 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and Article 18 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And that's from the UN webpage. And there is evidence to indicate that conscripted soldiers who become parts of a military unit against their will are often unmotivated in combat, and therefore they lower the overall effectiveness of those military units. Yet, despite all of that, 85 nations use conscription for all of the positive reasons I mentioned earlier, and I'm guessing that many other nations would seriously consider conscription if they were faced with an existential threat. So, there seems to be a lot of good reason to use conscription, including all of the personal development people get in the military, the overall fitness, their sense of national identity, and we in multicultural nations shouldn't underestimate the value of that. There is also the positive impact it has on women who gain more self-confidence through military service. And there is that sense of citizenship that Galston talked about. Of course, conscription isn't popular in many Western nations because it impinges on individual rights. And as you know, if you listen to the Spartan spirit, Western society is about balancing defense of democracy with individual rights. And we need to remember that national perspectives must come ahead of individual rights in time of need. And that is why many nations still use conscription. And for those of you shaking your heads in countries like the US, Canada, and Australia, sure, you're relatively safe from direct attack. Thus, you could argue that there is no need to impinge on those individual rights in your countries. But, I'll remind you, if you realize the risk that is present today, and your country ends up in a war with China or Russia, your Western way of life will probably go up in smoke. And you can bet your bottom dollar that your country will quickly turn to conscription to deal with the threat. It's happened in the past, and it could easily happen again. I'd even go so far as to say that the current threat is of such a degree that Western nations around the world, including Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and the US and the UK, should be talking about selective service right now to help build their reserve capacity just in case, and also to fill those recruiting gaps that I mentioned earlier. That is what is best for the West. So if you hear talk about that from your government, you should get behind it. Now, every week I highlight someone that epitomizes the Spartan spirit relative to the topic at hand. This week, it's Australian Army officer McLeod Wood, who wrote an article in The Cove, which is an Australian Army publication, and that article is titled, Considering the Heretical, Whole of Government Universal Service in Australia. He argued that threats posed by great power competition, extreme weather events, the spread of pandemics, the threat of political instability, 
and the difficulty with accessing human resources are stressing the whole of government enterprise. In particular, he noted that great power competition is increasing, particularly in the Indo-Pacific region. Indeed, the Australian Prime Minister announced in March 2022 that the number of defense personnel would need to rise by approximately 30% by 2040. One only needs to look at how often the military is called out to perform civilian disaster relief across many Western nations, including the US, Canada, and Australia, to see that the military would be stretched beyond reason if it had to fight a major war and perform domestic emergency tasks. He then proposed the model that he called the Universal Civil Service Scheme, and he had four components in it, including military service, emergency service, rural service, and public service. This is very much like the Austrian system I mentioned earlier. While I don't agree that everyone should get to choose which branch they could go to, I do agree with McLeod that we need to be having this discussion now across all Western nations. And I applaud the courage it took for him to raise this issue because we can't just keep ignoring the elephant in the room. The threat from China is real. If you doubt that, ask yourself why the U.S. is selling nuclear submarines to Australia. And given that threat, it's high time Western nations considered how they are going to fight a major war. As Israel is showing in late 2023, having a citizenry with military experience is the best preparation any nation can have for conflict. It's high time the US, Canada, Australia, and the UK reconsidered conscription. And if that's too bitter of a pill to swallow, then let's call it national service and give people some sort of option to go and fulfill civic duties in other areas of the nation. That is what is best for the West. That's it for today. Next week, we're going to have a look at the mental health crisis. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help me spread the message of what's best for the West if you tell a friend, post a link to it in your Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or whatever you use, and give the podcast a rating. You can find the references I used today on the podcast notes page of my website, spartanspirit.au. That's all one word, spartanspirit.au. Thanks for listening.